The kids are invited to kids' church with Kelly this morning. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He even commands impure spirits and they come out. This is where the reading for the Gospel of Mark ended for this morning. Now this, as many of you know, is our second Sunday in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to walk through this uh, in 15 sermons as best as we can. There's 16 chapters in Mark, so one gets the short end of the second. And that technically now, by the way, I chose to do, because we're still in chapter one in the second week. Um, so the only person to deserve the blame for that is myself. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do this morning was to sort of look at this scene, this first scene here of Jesus' sort of action, and see how this might help us see through the center of the Gospel of Mark. What is Jesus' action going to be as he goes through this Gospel? How is he going to come upon the earth? And so this, this text that is sort of the opening draws us into that. Now, if you uh, have a bulletin on the back, um, it's Ben Witherington III, which is quite the name, I always think. It's just putting the third at the end, I think, that, that makes it. Um, it is helpful to encourage and congress the first synagogue teaching of Jesus as presented in Mark and Luke. In one sentence, Mark moves from the symbolic margins to the heart of the provincial Jewish social order. Synagogue, sacred space, and on Sabbath, sacred time. Then what happens in Mark, and, and if, you, if you read through these first chapters all the way up to 8, we talked about the structure of the book sort of last time on how we have verses or chapters 1 through 8 that sort of talk about his ministry about and through Israel. Um, they sort of wander. And then his second half after the confession, Peter's confession and the confession of God uh, at, um, uh, at the beginning of 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration, end of 8, beginning of 9, that this sets him sort of on his ministry to Jerusalem towards more conflict that comes to his, resur- uh, to his death and resurrection, that that shape. And so here, if you read through these first chapters, oftentimes on a Sabbath, Jesus does such and such. He goes into the synagogue. Jesus does such and such. And there's this way in which Jesus has come in this way to sort of um, the, the theologian Ernest Kaysman uh, talks about that Jesus came to sort of clear the earth of demons and the demonic. And one of the places he begins to do that is in this place of sacred space and sacred time. It's where it was sort of created to be that way. And so this is, um, this is where, why I think this, gospel, this opening to the gospel is important, why we haven't moved very far, is because it gives us this insight into what Jesus is doing. It's this restoration that comes in a different way. It's a restoration that comes first to Israel in the places in which should not have been, been bent or crooked the other way. Sabbath for the Jews represents sort of the fulfillment of creation. It is the day in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, on which creation is sort of declared perfect. God rested and said it was good. And so that he goes on the Sabbath to these places, and it's often about healing and restoring and casting out demons, it should bring to us the mind of what is going on here. This, this idea of who Jesus is as one who restores that. Now, just an idea for where we're going from here is in the first eight chapters, I kind of want to look at these stories. Now, if you have 
any instance when you think of these that you want me to talk about, you can tell me and I'll talk about that one. But, but for the next couple of weeks, we'll look at Jesus' and his relationships to the disciples. We'll look at um, demons again, but in more specific terms. Uh, we'll look at physical healings, how Jesus restores uh, sight and this, that, and the end. We'll look at uh, the parables that make up this half of the gospel and then sort of the natural miracles, calming the storm, um, feeding of 5,000 and 4,000, I think, in Mark. He has two in chapters 1 through 8. So if you have, as you're reading through Mark, if you think of one of these, hey, I know you're going to talk about physical healings, and I want to hear more about this one in this chapter, let me know. And that could probably be the text for that Sunday. It would help me, because then I'll have to pick one of the physical healings to talk about. Uh, so let's do this together. Let's make... Um, um, but that's sort of the, the way in which we're going to go through it, um, the, the first eight chapters. The second uh, half will sort of divide in a different way, but that's how we'll sort of go through these first eight chapters. But this opening one, it, it's, it's important as we read through this to, to pay attention and mark both to time. Now, we talked about sacred time with uh, Sabbath, but also this, this day. So it says one day he goes to Capernaum, he goes to uh, Peter's mother's house, he heals um, somebody else. It's this like overloaded one day. It's like a picture into the life of Jesus' ministry on what a day might be like, particularly a Sabbath day of this restoring of this, and then he withdraws at night. And so uh, whether Mark took a bunch of stories and put them into a day to give us a picture of what Jesus was like, or this is a narrative of one day, doesn't really matter. It's this notion of like, what is this as he announced the kingdom last week? What does the kingdom look like as he moves throughout the world? What is the ministry that he does in that way and in that place? And so for us to slow down and look at it, what does this mean to say that this is the one day on the Sabbath that Mark sort of restores for us or holds out for us at the beginning of the gospel? That he comes to this place. Now, interestingly, he comes to the place four of the, he's called in the short passages we skip, he has disciples now with him. And he goes to this place, which is the home of his disciples. Jesus is one who enjoyed the hospitality of others. Um, he often came to these places where his disciples would live, where other people would invite him in, and that would be the place and ministry site at which he would do ministry for that time. But Mark's opening here has two things that are sort of, one that opens this story, one that ends the story, and then a middle. And the, the thing that opens and ends the story is that this is a new teaching. One of the things that I think that it's important to take this one sort of separately from the other demon scenes is that this one is weirdly about this one who has a new teaching. Sure, they credit him with being able to cast out demons. Demons listen to him. But even before, when he comes to the synagogue, this is what they are overwhelmed by, this new teaching. And what's even more incredible is that they don't tell us what this teaching is. It would be nice to know. But one of the things that Mark, and I think the other Gospels do in different ways, but particularly in Mark, is that Jesus is this one who comes on the scene, reads the scriptures and teaches in such a way that he seems such as the author or one who has authority with it, and that you would question um, as a Jew, he speaks as if he really knows what this is about. And his actions testify to what he knows this about. 
And one of the things I think we find in Mark is that the presence of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom is that he'll call it later, is the presence of Jesus in the world. So I had three ways of looking at the kingdom last week. The kingdom as it's present in Jesus, the kingdom as it's shrouded in mystery in the church, and the kingdom that we await to come in fullness into the world. But Jesus' presence as the kingdom is when they say a new teaching and then don't give us the teaching. It's it's such so that I think if you read the story well, you'll see in him that he is embodied of the new teaching and the new way. That he is the one who is a a unity in such. So um, there was a... For my... Job, I do webinars sometimes because, like every job, I hate myself. You know, you do a webinar because, in some sense, you you think it's going to improve you. You feel like it's going to be productive. But in the end, you know, you probably could have just read a book and come out further ahead. So I did one recently, but they were talking about how um, there are groups of people, and they were dividing conservative-liberal, which I didn't think was that helpful. But there are groups of people who like Jesus' teaching, um, and they want to follow his teaching and bring that into the world. And then there are groups of people who like his his cross, his death, and his resurrection, and those people come to bring out sort of the gospel in the world. And I was thinking, uh, particularly Christians, I think, we, we, we want this both-and world where it's like, yes, and so let's be the people who are both-and, as if anybody hearing that message was like, you know, he's right, I really don't care for the teaching, and I'm going to continue on that path. Or somebody hearing it with the, the teaching end says, you know, you're right, I really hate his death and resurrection, and either I'm going to have to abandon that or own that in my faith. I don't... Sometimes, and you can blame me for this later, but sometimes preachers say things, and I'm like, did you really think through what the logical like, outcomes of that might be? I mean, it sounds deep, but it doesn't do much. But I think what Mark is doing, Mark being better than the preachers, is saying that there's a unity to the teaching and the life and death. If you think you have teaching and you have life and death and it's your job to hold them together, you're dividing the person even itself. The goal is to not be one who divides the person that way. Who sees in Christ, oh, he's one who teaches, but he's also one who rises from the dead. For the Christian community, Christ is one. There is no Jesus I like and another Jesus I forget about. And Mark, in this way, is is this scene, is this teaching, which has no teaching, or does this go with, um, the miraculous, the, the cross and the resurrection, even though it has action, the description of it is all teaching. It's to say, as, as, as we follow this one, we follow one, and our goal is to work that through in our lives. We don't follow two. We don't um, hold in tension these things, at least in, in, to the extent to which we hold them in tension, we admit we're doing it wrong. I really want to be this way, but I also have to hold this there. It's like, okay, well, the first prayer is to not have that pull, but to see in Christ the one who is not two or three or four or five stories, but one story in his mission throughout the world and how he interacts and how he lives. And so they start with this, that Jesus has this new teaching. It says in in my translation, I should be using the one that you have. Does it say scribes or does it say teachers of the law? Scribes, probably, yeah. It's, it's the ESV, so, yeah, scribes. Whereas the NIV thinks, you don't know what scribes are, we'll go with teachers of the law. Um, 
which is helpful to some degree because what the scribes did were they were teachers of the law. Um, but the scribes, again, and as we read through Mark, it's careful to notice the descriptions. There are people, there are crowds, there are scribes, there are Pharisees, and each of these has different reactions to who Jesus is. And part of what the gospel is asking of us, in the same way um, every story kind of does, is who do you say that he is? Do you find yourself with the people? This is a new teaching, but I won't place it there. Do you find it with the crowds who follow him for what he has, but don't really um, quite follow him in life and death? And so the question about it is how do we begin to, to fall and follow Jesus along the way of life so that we're not scribes, Pharisees, this, that, and the other? And so, but the scribes um, gave well-footnoted sermons, I think. Um, guilty as charged here myself. Um, but what the scribes would do is they would take the law and then sort of use the oral tradition and other tradition to sort of break it apart. And it seems like, as we follow uh, what the world the scribes play in each of the four Gospels, it seems like they muted it some. It says it's about this, but it's really something much lower or much easier or much more achievable. That through their study and knowledge of the word, they seem to take the law and make it something else to deconstruct it some, to pull it away some, to, to, um, to, to sort of... Uh, and then there's this, this, this way in which you're doing that, knowing the oral tradition, knowing the research, is a way it sort of comes about you. And so Jesus is one who teaches not as the scribes do. He doesn't use tons of external sources to either raise up or lower his point. He speaks as one direct through the teachings. Now this is because we don't have the teaching here, but if you look at, um, you have heard it said, but I say to you, the famous antitheses that make up the last half of chapter five, I think, of the book of Matthew. Um, he, he speaks as one getting to the heart of the matter. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who commits lust in their hearts. Um, he, he has this way of, of saying that you, we could use the language to minify what, cut down what God has said to us, to make it bite-sized weak so we could handle it, which seems to be the role in the scribes and the Pharisees play sometimes. Or we could look at what it says and what is the heart of the matter. It's not just that you would go through life avoiding adultery. It's such that you would go through life and not view others as an ends to a mean of your own gratification. Much easier to avoid actual physical adultery than to question, when I look at that person or that thing, am I consuming it to its fulfilled ends in my own self and own heart without going through the actions, but that's the real thing I'm doing? Or am I um, seeing them as, as one who is called and blessed and gifted by God? Or if it's an object, one in which may, uh, a new phone, which may actually help me take better pictures of my kids or or be more productive, or whatever, but not as like this fulfillment upon I will be a different person on the other side of it. Phone, car, you could film whatever you want. So Jesus has this way of talking about the law, talking about the text, in a way in which he is sort of seeing through to what the point of it is. He's bringing it to people in a new way. He does not teach as the others teach. But in the middle of teaching, just then, a man entered the synagogue who was immediately possessed by an imp who was possessed by an impure spirit and cried out. Now, there's 
there's um, the, the, the translation that we bought for you guys, the ESV, uses the immediately often, the immediately, immediately, immediately. The, the word immediately occurs 49 times in the book of Mark and 51 total in the New Testament. So somebody really loved the word immediately. Um, and so as you, you could, I mean, you could go through and highlight or mark the immediately, mark, mark the immediately, and mark, um, and, and, and see how Mark's gospel is about driving this action forward of this person. Immediately, I think there's, somebody could check, but I think there's three immediately's or two at least just in this passage alone. Mark's gospel is forever being pushed forward as we follow Jesus along the way as we follow him to where he goes and what he does. Immediately, the next thing comes before you even finished consuming the first one. The story is meant to move fast in that way. Um, and so then an impure, a man with an impure spirit cried out. It's worth the man with the impure spirit. Um, most of, again, I should bring the one up that we have. Um, is it impure spirit in the red one? Unclean. Unclean spirit, yeah. So what happens here is, is the gospel writers are using what would have been a term at the time for the demonic. Um, impure spirit, unclean spirit, this thing. Uh, if you were a person of the first century, you would know that they mean this person has a demon in them. It means that there is some realm of the demonic within the minutes. You see the exchange that happens, both what he says and how he comes out of him with a shriek is, is that sort of the way it goes. Um, so he's, he's in, to be fair, a person with an unpure spirit should not be in synagogue, especially if you read it the way our translation has it, an unclean spirit. If you read any of the Old Testament, if you are unclean, you are not to be in, in the synagogue or the sanctuary or this, that, and the other. So uh, this person is out of place to begin with, this person with this unclean spirit. But in our, our translations, it has this bit of a, he was possessed by a, an unclean spirit. Possessed, perhaps, is a, is a good word, but it's almost like he is encompassed by an unclean spirit. He is bound by a spirit so much that he's no longer himself. All of him is caught in this way. So much when he talks, it's the spirit, this unclean spirit, this demonic spirit talking, not the person himself. I had attended to print it out, but I had forgotten. Um, this interview from a couple, uh, must have been 10 years ago, with uh, the Supreme Court Justice Anton Scalia. But he's getting interviewed by a woman, and they're, somehow they end up talking about heaven or hell, and she's like, oh, you don't really believe in that, do you? And he was like, yeah. And then he says, he leans into her and he whispers and he says, I even believe in the devil. And she's like, no way, not, not possible. And he's like, it's Catholic doctrine. All Catholics believe this. 70% uh, of America, which is true, believes in the devil. Um, he, he, she couldn't believe a respectable uh, Supreme Court justice could have room for the demonic within his imaginary. He ends up telling her, you should really read the screw tape letters. And, and one of the things that it's, it's funny because I wish I printed the exchange. She asked, well, what's he do nowadays? He says he might be responsible for atheism. But the main thing, and, and C.S. Lewis makes this main point at a different, is that he wants us not to think about him. He wants us not to see the world in that way. The best, what is it, the best lie the devil ever had is convincing us he doesn't exist anymore. 
and, and, and he says, she says, well, what's he doing now? And he says he got wilier, um, which is just a, um, an interesting exchange. But as I was thinking about this, um, this person who's, who's encompassed within a demon, this person in, in, encompassed within a demon, and then this exchange with Scalia, which is, is what does the devil do nowadays? Um, the, the two things came to mind. The first was is that it's the importance for the church to still have a spiritual view of the world, to still see that the demonic is active. We, generally in this country, although you could find stories in this country and more importantly throughout the world, of exchanges almost like this one. We came to pray for somebody and somebody last, lashed out as if they were encompassed by an unclean spirit. We don't see it as much here, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And the second is that he is, is the second thing I thought about is he's encompassed within it. Many of you are familiar with the, the line that I, I repeat from Carl Jung uh, that I, I think about often is that people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. When we look at contemporary 21st century North America, in which the neuroticness of the news, the, um, the walled-off gardens in which I only hear from these people or that people, the, the notion in which we write off host segments of society as being unclean masses. And it's, uh, if you're thinking of the other side, stop and think of, your, <laughs> think of your side. And I don't care what side it is. Because part of what I would say is, is perhaps the devil getting wilier is us being encompassed within these spirits that perfectly oppose each other. So the point isn't so much how do I get to the right opinion, the right vision on these things. It's how do I escape this thing all in itself. And it, the, this being encompassed by something is, is many of you have, I'm sure this happened in your life, where you start talking to someone and you could almost from what they begin to say instantly on, they, they sound as if they're talking in somebody else's voice. Um, they're talking in some other news personality. They're talking in some other perspective of the world. It's so much so that it's like hard to break. I think in prayer, we can ask if we do that ourselves, if we find our, our this. There was, a, there was a guy on Joe Rogan last week who used the phrase mass psychosis something. Um, and and so I watched a different video because I'm over-obsessed with these things too, so find myself guilty in this, by the way. It's, when I preach about something like that, it's me first. But the, that said, that cuts both ways, and that's exactly the point. Like in our society, that, that thing, if you think that's the other side, I think the way that the demonic is trying to work it out is for both sides to think that of each other. So that we dehumanize, we cut down, we do this. And so perhaps, and this is, I, I don't do a lot of applications in sermons, but perhaps it's time for the church to exit the noise of the world. To not always be bound to the sways of the news and social media and everything else. To, to not have an opinion on something might be a way in which we exercise the demons listening to Christ from our lives. I haven't thought about that. I don't know. And this isn't claiming neutrality for neutrality's sake. This is, this is our way of, I think, escaping um, 
I listened to a, my last church, we had a, a black preacher come and preach on a little bit further in Mark with the pigs. And he, he said, because black preachers have a better imagination often, he was talking about how the devil is called the prince of the airwaves, or the prince of, of, of the air. And he interpreted it as prince of the airwaves. Turn it off. Pull yourself from that demonic activity was his call to us. Creative prophetic vision in there in hearing the text. But this man is, is encompassed within, a, uh, uh, within unpure spirit and he cries out. And he cries out three different things um, that have different sort of emphasis. One, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Hostility first. Um, second, uh, have you come to destroy us? Fear. And the third, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Which is, this, which is a way in which there was a, in the spiritual warfare realm of the time, knowing the name of something was a way in which you might try to gain power over it. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, is this way of saying, let's negotiate. Um, Let's, let's have some relationship here. Let's, let me reclaim some of this space. I know who you are. The Holy One of God is the way that this, um, this sort of talking and this teaching goes. Um, and so the demon here, and demons have this relationship to Jesus in this gospel, is that they're able to see who he is. The people are amazed by his teaching at the beginning. What is this? can't figure out who Jesus is. It's one of the questions of Mark's gospel is, is how do we see who Jesus is? Um, but the demons always know who Jesus is. This, is. this takes us to the book of James, that the demons believe they just, they, they just tremble in their belief. Um, they have fear of it. Augustine had this, uh, this a small aside, had this great, that, that demons have faith, but they don't have charity, and in that way, that, that, that means that they're demons. Um, and, and charity, it, for Augustine, is the same uh, word in 1 Corinthians 13, that there, these three remain faith, hope, and love. In his translation, would have said charity. Um, uh, the greatest of these is love. By virtue of having faith, they can be demons, but lacking charity, they are demons. Um, uh, that's his way of, of sort of teaching this thing out. Nemli did a good job using her best mom, be quiet voice because this this uh the words here uh many of the translators pointed out are more like shut up or be bound or rebuke it's not like Shh. it's not a it's not a kind be quiet that jesus is emphasizing here but one that says uh uh shut up or or um be muzzled that was uh, that was one of the trouble i've never said that to my kids but uh but but be muzzled uh might be what he's saying in this way he's talking to something inside the man be muzzled in this way and jesus has this way in mark of sort of silencing those who confess who he is he tells people not to tell him about the miracles and this that and the other um, which we'll get into later Come out of him. The, appearance, uh, the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. There's, there's a lot in this passage, but the, the one is which it's, uh, the word for shakes him violently is like a dog tearing a something apart. Um, and so this is beginning of Mark, which I talked about last week, is this cosmic battle that's, that Jesus is ridding demons from the earth in the phrase of Ernest Kaysman. This is what Mark wants us to think about as we go, is that Jesus' mission in Mark is an exorcism of that which is bounding the world. 
one of the ways I, I was thinking you could think of the impure man is both as yourself in the ways in which we need Jesus to move into our hearts and cast out demons and as a stand-in for the whole world. Jesus moves into the world and he has to say to it, be quiet, come out of him. And the mission of Jesus in Mark is this exorcism in which he moves and exorcises the demons of the whole world. He's drawing these ones out. And it is these, this is his, his reparation project himself. The hymn here in this passage too, sorry, in the sentence that we just read, verse 26, is, is then the man returns. It's a different sense of the word him from the earlier one, which is the, the demon was in him. This is the man being restored to himself. Jesus is the one who, who in Mark's gospel, is the one who's going to war with the demons and rebuking them and bringing them out. The people were all so amazed, they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. The people are amazed. Um, but as we read Mark's gospel, it's not the proper response to who Jesus is. Jesus has this tension in the gospel, again we'll see, between his miracles are a sign that this kingdom in his presence is coming into the world. But they, when people start coming to him just for these, they inhibit them hearing the teaching and seeing it as him that whom this new teaching is embodied into the world, that he comes through it in that way. And the question, as Mark's gospel will propose it another time, is who is Jesus to us? How do we listen to him? How are we drawn to him? How do we follow him? The gospel, as I said last week, ends with, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. Mark's gospel is Jesus ahead of us and us following him. This is, um, so final observations on the text. This is one, um, the Sabbath day thing. I'm trying to think, there's two things I wanted to say, but I forgot how they were connected. Jesus' return on the Sabbath day is, is and, and this is how um, Jared Lofink defined it, just so I, I'm, I'm not stealing it from him, is that he's bringing creation back into uh, plumb with the world. He's bringing it, the creation itself is off tilt and off kilter. And what Christ is doing is bringing it back into sort of this orientation in which it was supposed to be. By restoring on, and this is six days with one day, in which was supposed to be the day we saw the perfection of creation, Christ is going with this mission into the world. But more so, the second point I wanted to talk about, which now I think I see how it's tied to this one, is that reading from Job, which was the word of the Lord, kind of thanks be to God that we read, life is misery, and I will die in misery. That reading from Job names what Jesus comes to in the world. We live lives bound in misery. We're lucky to be 21st century North Americans that misery often comes to us, most of us, as an interruption rather than as something we're constantly surrounded by. But if we open our eyes, listen to our coworkers, listen to our friends, 
Read the news. I know I said don't read the news, but read like what happens. Don't read the editorials. <laughs> read what happens in the world. Um, that's the world in which Jesus enters. The, the, the reason why I chose that reading, the Catholic lectionary, that's read on the same day as this text. And so when Jesus comes as the kingdom, he brings good news to that world. In restoring this man, hearing healing uh, Peter's mother in the next text, um, uh, and then the next one healing, uh, I think, a paralytic, um, that, that Jesus is coming into this world, which is futility and frustration, and bringing the kingdom to it. We, so often, can live lives muted to that reality. But if we but listen to Job and then see what Jesus does, it's this bringing back into alignment what creation was supposed to be. Jesus rebukes the demon. There was a last, one last connection to Job. Jesus rebukes the demon uh, in, in the same way he's going to rebuke the storm uh, later in Mark's gospel. And it seems to be in the same way in, in which the Lord rebukes the waters. The waters in the biblical imagination aren't just waters. They're a symbol for chaos and that which destroys Jesus comes as the Holy One of God to this world to uh, to, um, call the demons out of it, to rebuke them. And so it is us as his church and his people to be those who follow along in that mission and see the healing, the reconciliation, and the bringing back of creation to its true ends so that we may live faithfully in the world. Let us pray. God, you have called us into the gospel of Mark for this season. May we be like those disciples following along and watching what Jesus does, how the kingdom is present within him, how within him this healing of creation, this restoring of what's going on, is being brought back into the world. We ask that we may have ears to hear and eyes to see the miraculous of what your Holy One is doing. May we find ourselves caught up in that as well. May we see the full vision of who your Son is, not divisible into categories in which we have, but in the wholeness and holiness that he comes in. So too may we Resist the oppositions of our world, those demonic spaces, so that we can be whole in you and be a sign and a witness to this reign in which you proclaim in your Son, Jesus. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.